Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Our subject today is a little-known hero of political economy, Frederick Bastiat. Bastiat, as his name suggests, perhaps, is French, was French, who was born in 1801, and he died young at 49 in 1850. But during the time that he was alive, he served in the French legislature. Like Auberon Herbert, whom I discussed in a previous episode, both men were able to be in the legislature of their countries during the 19th century because the 19th century was so much better intellectually, culturally, than the 20th and 21st. Bastiat is important both for his moral base of political theory and for his economics. He was a champion of laissez-faire capitalism, who explained it with a clarity and a verve rarely, if ever, matched. His essays are fascinating and entertaining to read. Even when he's wrong, he's stimulating. Makes you wonder if maybe it's you that's wrong in economics, because economics is very hard. Philosophy is easy. Economics is hard. I'm going to talk about first his moral hyphen political philosophy and then uh, point out some things about his economics that are right and some things that are possibly right but maybe wrong. In his major book on political philosophy called The Law, which I'm holding up now, an ancient copy of it. I read it in 1964. He begins by asserting individual rights. What a wonderful and refreshing uh, way to approach the topic of political philosophy. He says that there are three individual rights. The rights of life, liberty, and property, we would call them. He calls them personality, liberty, and property, which is an interesting change on it. He says the personality comes from life, what he has in mind, or rights of person. I should, sometimes he uses the word personality, sometimes individuality, but in his canonical statements, he talks about life, faculties, production. In other words, individuality, liberty, property. This is man. And he t calls it the right to person. This is an interesting and, and a suggestive formulation because I define force, and the law generally defines force, as 
unconsented to contact with another's person or property. The phrase person or property is known in the law. It's not as metaphysical as life, but he connects it to life. Life connects to person. Faculties connect to liberty. You have to be able to be free to use your mind. <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, production is a source of property. Incidentally, in regard to production, do you know how Ayn Rand defines production? The application of reason to the problem of survival. And how does uh, Basiat define it? <clears throat> he defines it, the application of our faculties to these natural resources. So it's very similar, and the difference is quite subtle but monumental. Ayn Rand always talks about reason, the mind, intelligence, intellect. Bastiat rarely does that. Now, Herbert, whom I discussed previously, as I said, does talk about reason, and that's an advance over uh, Bastiat, whom he must have been familiar with. I think everyone in the pro-capitalist movement of the late 19th century was familiar with Bastiat. He was well-known, a colorful, exciting personality. Speaking of personality. <laughs> so life requires production, which requires the use of our faculties, and that's the basis of the rights of person, the rights of property, and the right to liberty. Life, li I'm quoting now, life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws in the first place. And the next heading is, what is law? What then is law? It is the collective organization of the individual right to lawful defense. But he's very concrete also. Law is force he says, and it's, that's quite right, and very few people get that. He talks about, well, wouldn't you have the government provide charity to the needy? And he says, what is a law providing for the needy? It's force. The government, he says, has no breast to give milk. The government can only give the milk that is taken from someone else. The law that gives you things is the law that has taken them by force away from someone else. He applies this to every aspect of government intervention. He's quite consistent. And he comes out with a fundamental distinction between production and plunder, 
plunder. We don't use that word too much anymore, but it's a uh, kind of summons up images of pirates rather than just saying force. It's similar to Ayn Rand's use of the term loot, which summons up the idea of pirates looting. So he says there's two ways that people can get values. One is by producing them. And the other is by plunder, by taking it from someone who has produced it. All that the law can do, all that government can do, is use force to take from some and give to others. That is all it can do if it strays from its proper function, which is the protection of individual rights. He also uses the term justice, that the point of law is to secure justice, but he, which is a, a little more vague and not strictly correct if you define all your virtues correctly. Because you, if I criticize someone who doesn't deserve criticism, that's unjust. But it is not something that should be met with force. So there's a wider concept of justice. Rights are the application of justice to force. But he doesn't, uh, you know, in any way lack an understanding of the facts involved. He would never say, oh, you have no right to be rude or to uh, act against your self-interest or to act for your self-interest, that you have no right to do that. He's very clear what he means by laws equal force equals, as he puts it, let's see if I can find this quote uh, quickly. There's so many quotes that I decided, you know, I should not read so much because people don't like hearing quotes, but believe me, it's all in these books. When law, by means of its necessary agent, force imposes upon men a regulation of labor, a method or a subject of education, a religious faith or creed, then the law is no longer negative. It acts positively upon people. It substitutes the will of the legislator for their own wills the initiative of the legislature for their own initiatives. When this happens, the people no longer need to discuss, to compare, to plan ahead. The law does all this for them. Intelligence becomes a useless prop for, pe for the people. They cease to be men. They lose their personality, their liberty, their property. Try to imagine a regulation of labor imposed by force that, it is, that is not a violation of liberty. A transfer of wealth imposed by force that is not a violation of property. If you cannot reconcile these contradictions, then you must conclude that the law cannot organize labor and industry without organizing injustice.
Now, he has an interesting argument about why you have to ban force from society and why you have to make the distinction, you that is the political philosopher and the person thinking about how to organize society. He says there are only three alternatives. Either everyone lives by plunder, some live by plunder and some live by production, or everyone lives by production. I think that's a pretty good argument. <clears throat> because if everyone lives by plunder, we, everyone dies within two weeks. If some live by plunder and some don't, then you have the legalized civil war, as Ayn Rand calls it, of a mixed economy. You have an unstable situation where people are saying, well, why should he be able to steal from me and I can't steal from him? Why are the uh, rich able to get rich and the poor have to stay poor? Why is it distribution of incomes as it is? Um, they believe there's plunder when there isn't, but if there were actual plunder, where there is actual plunder, like all the subsidies that are given to business, like Elon Musk's subsidies and Solyndra subsidies and bridges to nowhere and so forth, that everyone can see is money taken away from other people. So I want to get in on the action. And as Ayn Rand described in Atlas Shrugged with the 20th century motor uh, factory meeting, everybody thinks they're going to get rich by parasitizing the people above them. And no one thinks of the people below them that are trying to get rich by parasitizing them. So when you have a mixture of uh, production and plunder, or parasitism and creation, to use the words of the fountainhead, when you have a mixture, it rewards the plunderers and punishes the producers, so that does not go on for long. That's a slow death, whereas everybody, go ahead and plunder everybody else, is a quick death. So living by production is the only rational method. And he's clearer than almost anyone in history that living by production means trade. He defines uh, economics in terms of exchange and he defines the market and the division of labor as one man producing for another. We exchange services. It's not a self-sufficient farm. You sell your services on the market. If you sell goods, you're selling the embodied services that went to make that good. <clears throat> so he's not, you know, unclear that at all, to put it mildly, he's like the most clear guy in history on the fact that giving plundered wealth 
is enslaving the people who earned that wealth. Well, maybe second to Ayn Rand on that, but that's still saying a lot. So I, th I think that's a, a pretty good negative argument. It has the, the, the three possibility. It has the defect that it's an indirect proof. It says, well, it can't be A, it can't be B, and it has to be A, B, or C, so it's C. But the direct proof, which he's not, a, you know, averse to giving, is that human life requires the application of faculties, that is, reason, to reshape matter to serve human life and the exchange of that with your fellow men. So he does have the positive argument, and I think supplementing it by the um, reductio ad absurdum of the two alternatives is a valid thing. It helps, it helps understand current events. Now let's um, turn, I, I'd love to sing the praises of his political writings, but they're intertwined with his economics, and his economics is really fascinating. Many of you probably know that Henry Hazlitt wrote a book called Economics in One Lesson. The one lesson is from Bastiat. It's called The Broken Window Fallacy. And I'm going to read it to you. Have you ever witnessed the fury? It's, it's a, a page and a half. Two, two pages. Have you ever witnessed the fury of the good bourgeois Jacques Bonhomme, the, you know, every man, good man, when his dreadful son succeeded in breaking a window? If you have witnessed this sight, you will certainly have noted that all the onlookers, even if they were 30 in number, appeared to have agreed mutually to offer the unfortunate owner this uniform piece of consolation, quote, good comes out of everything. Accidents like this keep production moving. Everyone has to live. What would happen to glaciers if no window panes were ever broken? Close quote from the neighbors, the onlookers. Well, there is an entire theory in this consoling formula which is good to surprise in flagrante delecto in the midst of the crime. In this very simple example, since it is exactly the same as the one that unfortunately governs the majority of economic institutions, and still does. If you suppose that it is necessary to spend six francs to repair the damage, if you mean that the accident provides six francs to the glazing industry and stimulates the said industry to the, to the tune of six francs, I agree. And I do not query in any way that the reasoning is accurate. The glazier will come, do his job, be paid six francs, rub his hands, and in his heart, bless the dreadful child. This is what is seen. But if by way of deduction, as is often the case, the conclusion is reached that it is a good thing to break windows, that this causes money to circulate, 
and therefore industry in general is stimulated, I am obliged to cry, stop. Your theory has stopped at what is seen and takes no account of what is not seen. What is not seen is that since our bourgeois has spent six francs on one thing, he can no longer spend them on another. What is not seen is that if he had not had a window to replace, he might have replaced his down-at-the-heel shoes or added a book to his library. In short, he would have used his six francs for a purpose that he will no longer be able to. Let us therefore draw up the accounts of industry in general. That's in italic. As the window was broken, the glazing industry is stimulated to the tune of six francs. This is what is seen. If the window had not been broken, the shoemaking industry or any other would have been stimulated to the tune of six francs. This is what is not seen. And if we took into consideration what is not seen because it is a negative fact, as well as what is seen because it is a positive fact, we would understand that it makes no difference to national output and employment taken as a whole, whether window panes are broken or not. Let us now draw up Jacques Bonhomme's account, you know, the, the books. In the first case, that of the broken window. He spends six francs and enjoys the benefit of a window, neither more nor less than he did before. In the second, in which the accident had not happened, he would have spent six francs on shoes and would have had the benefit of both a pair of shoes and a window. Well, since Jacques Bonhomme is a member of society, it has to be concluded that taken as a whole and comparing what he has to do with his benefits, society has lost the value of the broken window from which, as a generalization, we reach the unexpected conclusion. Society loses the value of objects destroyed to no purpose. He's being sarcastic there, unexpected. And the aphorism that will raise the hackles of protectionists, breaking, shattering, and dissipating does not stimulate the national employment or more succinctly, destruction is not profitable. What will le moniteur industriel say, and what will the opinion be of the followers of the worthy Monsieur de Saint-Chamans, who has so accurately calculated what productive activity would gain from the burning of Paris? because of the houses that would have to be rebuilt. Sound familiar? Well, of course Japan and Germany roared ahead after World War II. They had all that building to do. It was the blessings of destruction. If only somebody would bomb New York and Los Angeles, we would have something to do. We could grow. Continuing from Basia. It grieves me to upset his ingenious calculations, especially since he's introduced their spirit into our legislation, but I beg him to redo them 
in introducing into the account what is not seen next to what is seen. The reader must take care to note clearly that there are not just two characters, but three. There's a new point now in the little drama that I have put before him. One, Jacques Bonhomme, representing the consumer, reduced by the breakage to enjoying one good instead of two, the window instead of the window and the shoes. The second is the glazier, who shows us the producer, whose activity is stimulated by the accident. The third is the shoemaker, or any other producer, whose output is reduced to the same extent for the same reason. It is this third character that is always kept in the background and who, by personifying what is not seen, is an essential element of the problem. He is the one who makes us understand how absurd it is to see profit in destruction. He is the one who will be teaching us shortly that it is no less absurd to see profit in a policy of trade restriction, which is, after all, nothing other than partial destruction. Therefore, go into the detail of all the arguments brought out to support it, and you will find merely a paraphrase of that common saying, what would happen to glaciers if windows were never broken? So you get this three, the, the, between the guy who's, the, the baker's window is broken and the glazier, it's a wash. He loses, the glazier gains the six francs. But if you bring in what he would have spent the six francs on, that other industry, the shoemaker, loses what the glazier gained. So there's two losses against one gain. This is the basis of Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. That is the one lesson. Look at what is seen and what is not seen. Trace the effects out through the whole economy across time, not just what's in front of your nose. So, as good as he is, why didn't France become laissez-faire and stay laissez-faire? It's not just uh, Frederick Bastiat. Jean-Baptiste Say, S-A-Y, is one of the greatest economists who ever lived, and he was a champion of laissez-faire capitalism. And there's a political theorist, Destute de Tracy, who's pretty good. He's not as good as John Locke, but he's pretty good. So what happened to France? Why did it go down? Because France sunk behind England quite a bit and became, in effect, an intellectual colony of Germany. And that's what I think happened that the, the French, the leading, but I'm not sure, and I'd like, you know, theories to be developed from investigating the literature of France in the late 19th century. But um, the, 
philosopher Immanuel Kant in Germany soon took over from Descartes because the leading philosopher in France, the man with the biggest reputation and the greatest depth of thought, really, was René Descartes, who I have refuted in another episode, the famous cogito ergo sum, is wrong. But that leads into, uh, we'll get my picture back in a second here. And, okay. That leads into Kant, because Kant took what Descartes did and pushed it further. Descartes separated the mind from the world. Kant gave an argument that no activity of consciousness can ever contact reality as it really is. So he went, he took the bad side of Descartes, and there are a few good things in Descartes. He took Descartes' worst premise and wrote it for all that was worth, but it was logical given the mistake that Descartes made starting inside consciousness. So I think that's what happened. In um, England, Descartes was not revered. Newton and Locke were revered. And I think that's why um, there was an active pro-capitalist movement in England for longer than there was in France. But I, that's armchair guessing. I'd like to see the research on that. That's a taste of one of the greatest economic expositors of, he did not originate these doctrines of all times. And what, is, what he did originate is the part that's interesting but questionable. And I'm going to just mention that but not go into it because I don't know the answer. He made a distinction between value, which we would think of as market value, and utility, which we would call use value, personal use value. So something that might have a great utility for you, something of high personal value, may have no market value. Your children's drawings that you put up on the refrigerator, I don't think you'll be going out and selling them in the marketplace. And uh, other things have great market value, but for any given individual might have no personal value. So he makes that distinction, and then he says that market value, which he just calls value, is based on the exchange of services, and the price is determined by being cheaper than it would cost for you to do it for yourself. So if you buy bottled water, now going back, you know, to his day, 1840s, uh, you could go to the well and draw it yourself. But if you buy water, uh, it's because it saves you. It saves you time. It saves you effort. So you exchange your service that you use to earn the money to pay for it for the water carrier's service. 
it sounds sort of right, but you know, I'm worried that's the labor theory of value. That the market price is determined not by supply and demand. This was um, Adam Smith and then Karl Marx, but by the amount of labor that goes into it. But of course, some labor may be minimal. The example that's usually given is wine aging. You take grapes, squeeze them, and put them in bottles. That's all labor. But then you wait a month, a year, 10 years. And the longer you wait until a certain point, the more valuable, the higher the price of that wine. You're not doing anything. It's just in your basement. So we don't want to say that it's the exchange of labor. Now, uh, I'm not going to go deeply into this, but I just want to excuse Bastiat. He did not confuse physical labor with all productive work. He's quite explicit that you don't have to move matter around to be doing something valuable, and he cites speculators and middlemen, the people who are vilified for not, by the socialists, by not moving matter around to make things. He said those are productive too. They're providing a service. So it's open to him to interpret the case of the wine as well. You're providing the service of storing it, letting it age, supervising it, something like that. But I just don't think that service for service is the whole story, if it's even a fundamental. But it's an interesting idea, and it's in um, his book, Economic Harmonies, which is written with the same zest and verb that the other things are written, and it quite, it's got a lot of fabulously good points in it. So let's stop there and see if there's any questions. Daniel? We have no questions. Good, then I've made everything perfectly clear and we can end on, almost on time. This is a first. Thank you for attending. Next week, I'm going to do Stoicism and other death-worshipping philosophies. Stoicism is a philosophy of death-worship. But it's not the only one. See you next Monday.